and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 49, John 6 and John 7 in A Game of Thrones. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as at Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and at my blog, LizenArborGold.com. I'm hello. I'm another one of your hosts. You might know me as Eliana, but you also might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit, on the Mason Monthly Podcast, maybe as Arithmetric on Twitter. Check out my blog. It's the Money Face blog. Yes, actually, you should check out Eliana's blog. She does have a WordPress. It's the Many Faced blog, and she just put out a killer piece on Daenerys Targaryen. It was like her magnum opus, it the is. one thing she's ever written, ever. I mean, like, I do feel complete now. It's the first thing that I put on that blog in like three years. I'm jealous. I, I, uh, I hope I can do something soon. You mean like just not do anything for three years and then do something? I mean, that's what I'm yeah. in the middle of currently. I'm currently doing that, but... <laughs> yeah, you can do it. I'm working I believe on it. in you. Uh, Ashara part three. Fingers crossed. Prayer circle. Uh, we have a lot to get through. We'll drop a link to that new essay in the description of the episode. But we want to give a couple updates. We have some big updates with Patreon. We have a live stream on Sunday, April 28th. Coming at you straight from Ice and Fire Con, not affiliated with the con per se, but we will be live at Ice and Fire Con recording this. Yes. So first of all, this live stream comes as a result of thanks to all of you and our patrons helping us reach our stretch goal of $1,000. So thank you so much for everyone. Like, And again, it is episode 49. And next week, like every, everything's everything's really exciting for us here at Girls Gone <laughs> Everything's Cannon. coming up, Girls Gone Canon. <laughs> It really feels like it, okay? Like, the cannon is shooting us in- into the sky right now. <laughs> and next week is episode 50, also our one-year anniversary, and we have a very special surprise for all of you. Yeah, we are going to have on The Joe Magician. You might know him from his YouTube channel, from his many essays. He does some great, great work. He has a great piece we talked about, oh, just a couple weeks ago about Weirwoods. Mm-hmm. Tons of great theories. Check out his channel. We'll drop a link to that as well. But he is going to be joining us for John 8 in A Game of Thrones for our 50th episode. Yes, we were so excited to have Matt, aka Joe Magician. Would you believe that his name is not, in fact, Joe? This really threw me off when I first learned that. But he's done a lot of great writing on Jon Snow and the Starks and how they intersect with things north of the wall, especially in regards to the prologue with Waymar Royce. And he's just kind of like a great expert on all those things. And so we are really excited to have him here talking about John with us. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous that we didn't just get him for this week because there's so much other stuff we were just chatting about. Uh, so much other stuff? Oh my god. No, Othar stuff is what I was saying. Oh. <laughs> oh. And we have a patreon special episode coming out for five dollar and up patrons uh exclusive episode about the very first episode of game of thrones winter is coming where we discuss analyze and compare it to the pilot episode to season eight episode one with the many parallels we just saw and just discuss its adaptation from the book and what worked and what didn't and we have a special guest on for that as well you may know him from the internet from twitter and from his podcast a scene of ice and fire Manu, uh, also Manuclear Bomb on Twitter. He will be joining us for that. So make sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We had a fantastic time recording with Manu. And we say we talk about baseball. Um, debatable. Debatable. <laughs> debatable. <laughs> debatable. <laughs> but along with all these other great voices that are on our cast, let's talk about some things that all of you have been saying. Yeah, we got a great tweet from Heathen King, our friend Grant on Twitter. It was about John, of course, and he said, As we get deeper into John's A Game of Thrones chapters, I wanted to say how much I adore them. First time through, I thought this was boring and wanted to get back to the great drama at King's Landing. On rereads, it's like these are the beating heart of the first book. Your analysis of a fellowship being built is spot on. The camaraderie jumps off the page. Having Tolkien references all over these chapters, Sam, Pip, Halder, later Salador, gives us a clear message of intent. There's so much bubbling under the surface here. I know we've spoken previously about how this is very much like a fun little young adult novel in the middle of this very bleak book and amidst a very bleak landscape, and we have our moody teenager recognizing his privilege and checking it, learning and building a coalition. 
These chapters on reread absolutely cemented John as my favorite character. We get so much of what this series is really about, like Chloe said. Yes, thank you very much. Like, I'm really glad that Grant is enjoying this. I'm glad that people who like John are enjoying this as much as we are. Uh, we also had Lady Shelley, a good friend of ours, who also loves John, saying that. So, yeah, that makes me feel like we're doing good. We're doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be careful. This is everyone's boy, Jon Snow. Yeah, he's also our son. He's one of my yeah. sons. They're all my children, even the yeah. bad ones. Especially Pip and Gren. I Those are really my children. Yes, and this episode, we're going to get into a lot more of that relationship and dynamic. We get a lot of really good stuff in John 7 on that. Yeah, we definitely do. It's really precious, but also like very emotionally tugging at your heartstrings because of the news. Yes. Though, speaking of coming of age, and again... Our 50th episode coming up. We got another email from our good friend, Warren Dudson. He says, Girls, as you approach 50 in the company of Jon Snow, I'm struck with one word after this week's episode, and that is potential. George spends a lot of time in Jon's chapters highlighting his potential even later as he achieves. We see his potential as a swordsman when he arrives at Castle Black, not shy to utilize his distinct advantage of training over his new brothers. He shows potential as a comrade and leader, too, when he heeds Donald Noy's words, and as all good leaders should, he listens and acts. His defense of Sam and the support of his brothers, contrary to Alistair's orders, is notable. Later in this time with Corin. Again, we see his potential, recognizes Corrin serves as a mentor, whom John respects immensely. Joining the Wildlings challenges John's black and white beliefs, and his relationship with Egret triggers the feelings he has on his perceived heritage. While outwardly he's adamant, he still goes into that cave, and his feelings for Egret are sincere and remain so as he cradles her dying in his arms. Oh, why oh, would you Why would you why say would that, you Warren? Yeah, why would you attack us on our podcast? My God. Okay, Satan. Jesus. God. <laughs> yeah, Jesus protect us. It is Easter. You're being a tat. Oh my gosh. There are loads and loads of other examples of potential throughout John's arc, and it's something that will be present in my mind as I listen. Yes, Finally, <laughs> I just like can't believe that someone would just bring up Egret dying like Warren, out of the you're blue at us. us. Christ. Sorry, Warren. Keep going. We're, we're, I'm still raw. I mean, we're, we're going to get there, and all of you are going to just like... The podcast is us going to be crying. Yeah, drunk crying. It's just going to be drunk tears. Finally, though, it does make me wonder and pose a question to you guys. What potential did Rhaegar have as a king? What kind of rule might he have had if Robert was defeated and Ares deposed? There are supposed to be emojis here, but they're not showing up in this right now. So just know that there were three emojis. Who knows what they were? Oh, they're thinking emojis. I can see them. Orin said, thinking emoji, thinking emoji, thinking emoji. Thank you. You're welcome. That was important to the message. <laughs> it really was, though. Look forward to hearing your thoughts. Oh, thinking emoji. <laughs> and hope this mail makes it through. Wishing you all the joy in the world for Ice and Firecon and your life cast. Unfortunately for me, it's Valor Harris. Aw, sucks. You gotta work. But hopefully we will hold another one eventually that you can see. Warren, thank you so much for writing into us. We have missed and like your emails. I know you've been busy with work, as you mentioned to us. I do like that idea that parallel to Rhaegar, right? We mm -hmm. get this background where Rhaegar, you know, wakes up one day after reading scrolls and after conversing back and forth with Maester Aemon, actually, in the Citadel. And he wakes up and goes, I must be a knight one day, right? He goes from being mm -hmm. scholarly and reading and reading and reading to now suddenly he believes he's probably the prince that was promised and i think that hint of prophecy absolutely is what drives a lot of these targaryens mad or what really is their downfall not necessarily driving them mad i think rhaegar had potential like you're saying there as a king he would have had a more peaceful rule but he wasn't really willing to do anything to depose his father, right? He said, when I come back from dealing with, you know, what I'm about to go off and do, which was Lyanna, uh, <laughs> he doesn't come back. He doesn't take care of things like he tells Jamie he's going to do. He ends up facing Robert on the field, remaining loyal to his family, to Ares the Mad King, and Ares ends up murdered by Jamie and Rhaegar murdered by Robert. I think John's going to do a lot of learning on his own to not have it end up that way. Obviously, we know he kind of gets a little stabby stabbed. Uh, but when he comes back to life, I think he'll have learned a lot and he'll take a lot from all of these different mentors that he's had, whether it's the old bear 
or, uh, you know, having core in half hand, etc. Mance, Stannis, he will learn from all of these mentors, much like the characters like Sansa or Arya are doing. Yeah, and I'm curious to see which of those lessons he retains and which ones he doesn't, right? Because part of the learning process is being like, well, that was shit advice, that was good advice, and deciding what works for you, especially because we're going to see a changed John. George R. R. Martin talks about how he thinks death should change characters when they come back, so he'll be a little different when he comes back. I think it's not going to be exactly as it was in the show. So, as for how well Rhaegar would have done, I think, you know, Ares set the bar really low, <laughs> all right? <laughs> the bar was low. Even Robert seems like a great king in comparison to him. I don't know how well he would have done. It seems like he didn't really respect the bonds that his vassals had with one another and didn't think to share some of those ideas. It seems as though he had as much of a talent as Robert, though, for winning people over. He... A lot of people thought that he was very valiant and trusted in him. And, you know, assuming that the tourney at Hall was supposed to be his sort of, like, way of bringing lords together to think about how we're going to take care of Ares and the, assuming the rumors in the world of Ice and Fire were right about Rhaegar plotting against his father. I mean, maybe, maybe not, but it seems like he was good at coalition building until you know he blew it all up so yeah i do feel like liana was that uh, that bolt you know he was she was that wrench in the plan she was the bolt are you saying she's a bolt no stop <laughs> bolt off aliana bolt <laughs> off uh <laughs> no i think she was a wrench in that plan i think you know even that that memory jamie has of him you know we'll talk about this when i return never returns uh that was the wrench in the plan he didn't know he was going to fall in love with the Stark girl and bear the savior, Jon Snow, you know. The timing of that, I think when he tells Jamie he had already run off with Lyanna, he comes back to King's Landing, right. grabs the other King's Guard, and then goes to the Trident. And then it's over. Yeah, and then it's over. And You took too long fucking around. I think that's the issue, right? Like mm -hmm. that, just as how Robert is able to romanticize Lyanna because he never actually got to be with her, a lot of people romanticize Rhaegar's potential. And because of that, he can always be that perfect prince or king to people, if you're not Robert But Baratheon. the point of the matter is, he fucked up. Yeah. I mean, and people always say, you know, I I'm a big proponent for this, and we're, we'll obviously get into this in other chapters, especially I know Tyrion's chapters, we'll hear about it, Dornish chapters in general, but... It doesn't matter what kind of cool fuck deal you had with Elia, you know, like, I don't care if you were like, yeah, you can't bear children, so now I could go fuck off whoever I want, and maybe I'll legitimize that child or whatever. You know, I don't really care whatever the fuck it was. He's still responsible for those deaths. Yeah. That blood is on his hands. And a lot of people are like, well, the castle fell, like, they were gonna die, what was he gonna do about it? You secure them, you get them out of there, you break them out of there, you don't let Ares keep them there. Like, that should have been your first, like, that's still your blood. That should have been your first thing. I don't know. It, it just is a bad taste. Like, it's yeah. hard because I want to, I mean, I know he's tragic and I want to appreciate that and understand that. But, like, at the same time, all of those thoughts just stick in your head and you're like, what the fuck, man? Yeah, for sure. I wonder if we're going to see that he thought he was following what he saw as a longer game in terms of prophecy and mm -hmm. songs of ice and fire and stuff. But, you know... As you were saying, what is the price of all that? Like, was all of it worth it if the whole kingdom burned? And it reminds me of the conversation between Stannis Baratheon and Davos of, you know, what is the life of one bastard boy against the kingdom? And Davos says everything. You know, like, what is the life of your two true trueborn children? What is the life of all these many people against... Everything. Yeah. So I don't know. Hmm. Anyway. But Eliana, what is honor? Compared to a woman's Oh, touch. I thought you were going to ask me what is honor. I was like, a horse? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, before we jump into our lightning round, we do want to plug, make sure you check out. This week's episode will already have been out, but coming up, uh, we will put up that audio recording from the live cast for episode three of Game of Thrones up on Podbean at some point, so... Make sure to take a look for that. It'll show up on any place you listen to podcasts. And our Game of Thrones episodes will keep coming out on Tuesdays for now uh, till the end of the season. Yep. And also, because we are putting out this live stream and going to Ice and Fire Con and all these things, we will be taking a very, very brief break when it comes to these 
book episodes, just one episode. Um, we will not be releasing the usually scheduled episode that would come out between like the 8th and the 10th of May, just to give us a little time to recuperate. But our show episodes in response to the um, Game of Thrones TV show, the original series, will still be coming out. So you will not get John 9 and 10 on May 8th, 9th, or 10th, depending on if you were a Patreon or or part of the public, but you will still be getting an episode in response to the Game of Thrones Season 8 episodes on May 6th and May 13th. Yes. So now let's check out what we missed between John 5 and John 6 in the book. Our lightning round, Tyrion 6. Tyrion and Bronn meet the mountain clansmen of the Vale. Eddard 11. Eddard holds court and hears Riverlanders calling Gregor Clegane to justice, beginning the Brotherhood Without Banners. Yes! yes. I just wanted to applaud for a second here. <laughs> uh, Sansa 3. Sansa's dreams are dashed when her father means to send her home from King's Landing. Eddard 12. Sansa helps Eddard understand why John Aaron died and confronts Cersei about it in the Godswood. Daenerys 5. Daenerys eats a stallion heart, and her brother realizes he is not the hero of the story. He is fitted with a golden crown. Eddard, 13. The king is mortally wounded, and Ned allies with Littlefinger to save the crown from falling to Joffrey and Cersei. This leads us into John 6 in A Game of Thrones. John is chosen for the stewards when he puts the sorting hat on, and he's pretty ticked off. But what he doesn't understand is while he's no ranger, he's being groomed. He's the old bear's steward. He and Sam say their vows beyond the wall at a heart tree, and Ghost brings home a surprise. And so the chapter begins with Sam is also being summoned to the set because he too is advancing. And it seems like John's plan of asking Maester Aemon for some help worked because Sam's going to be assisting Maester Aemon. Political John! Okay, so I don't know what it actually means, but there's some theory that John is, like, being political in the show right now, and that he's, like, holding his cards from Danny, and he's gonna reveal them and take the throne and be super political or some shit. That's, um, that's a theory. Yeah, right? I'm like, no, it's not. John doesn't want that. It's not a thing. And it doesn't seem like a very John thing in the show. No. And, like, he's definitely, like, political and, like, he's courteous and trying to meet people's needs in the books, but I, he's not, he's not, like... For Sam, it was, like, because he loves Sam. Yeah, he's not, like, schemy political. Yeah. He, the things that he holds to his heart are, like, I can't tell people that I actually, like, care about the free folk. <laughs> no one's Absolutely. gonna, like, want to believe me. Like that I think they're, like, people or something. Oh, God. <laughs> Gross. Anyway. Well... It's a beautiful day out. The walls glistening, the crystals are rainbowing in the sept. Reminds me a lot of uh, the sept in King's Landing mm-hmm. and that crystal crown on that high septon. The other boys are super shocked when Sam enters and the other high officers come in. And apparently the chapter wants us to know that it's noteworthy that the septon is sober. So I've included that <laughs> to note. But the other high officers come in. Those include, of course, the Lord Commander Jair Mormont, Maester Eamon, Sir Alistair Thorne. And then Bowen Marsh, the Lord Steward, Othal Yarwick, the First Builder, and Sir Jeremy Riker, who is standing in for Benjen. How dare you? Yeah. How dare you stand there? <laughs> How dare. <laughs> but also he's probably like, oh, this is so awkward. I wish Benjen would come back. <laughs> anyway. So Jor Mormont gives this big speech, and it's about how the Night's Watch is one house and unity. Is he talks about at evenfall as the sun sets and we face the gathering night, you shall take your vows. From that moment, you will be a sworn brother of the night's watch. Your crimes will be washed away, your debts forgiven. So, too, you must wash away your former loyalties, put aside your grudges, forget old wrongs and old loves alike. Here, you begin anew. He warns them of what they're going to be giving up. Kings, lords, honor of a house, gold, woman's love, offspring. He urges them to think carefully before saying the words, because the penalty for desertion is death. And, I mean, obviously the Night's Watch is similar in, like, some of those oaths to the Kingsguard. 
especially the way that Mormont phrases it here, maybe because I'm just like feeling real Easter vibes today. It feels kind of religious and like baptismal and resurrection-ish, like the whole washing away of all of these, like your old life and becoming like a new person and reborn feels kind of like that. And it also, the giving away of everything here and giving all that up reminds me of another order that a different member of John's family joins, the House of Black and White, because when John becomes a steward and he has to like first learn to like wash and serve stuff like serving and doing all these like chores and it's very much similar to Arya's first few days uh, at the house of black and white which is kind of funny because it's the black and white which are the colors of the night's watch and the king's guard but the giving up of like your old life and things and identity too oh yeah that's really a great call out on that actually now that you say that that i didn't even think about how black and white in the color scheme, I mean, obviously, it's black. And, what's great about the House of Black and White is, like, it's a literal house of black and white. You yeah. Know, split right down the center of, like, morality. Uh, but that's a really great kind of parallel. No one moves during this speech. No one leaves. Mormont says the recruits will take their vows in the sept and asks if anyone keeps the old gods to take their vows in the godswood. John says he does, and we learn the Night's Watch never kept a godswood because the forest beyond is the same as it always was with its own godswood. Sam pipes up he'd like to say his vows in front of the old gods as well. The voice made John glance back in surprise. Samuel Charlie was on his feet. The fat boy wiped his sweaty palms against his tunic. Might I? Might you go as well to say my words at this heart tree? Does House Tarly keep the old gods too? Mormont asked. No, my lord. Sam replied in a thin, nervous voice. The high officers frightened him, John knew. Oh, the old bear most of all. I was named in the light of the seven at the sept on Horn Hill as my father was, and his father and all the Tarleys for a thousand years. Why would you forsake the gods of your father in your house? wondered Sir Jeremy Riker. The night's watch is my house now, Sam said. The seven have never answered my prayers. Perhaps the old gods will. Well, the old gods are Bran and Bloodraven, so good news. Good news, Sam. You've met him. Well, one of them, <laughs> kind of, you know, he's he's kind of a prophet-ish thing for them. Yeah, yeah. He's helpful. He actually answers more of their prayers, I think, than the other way around. Whatever. Yeah, you think? <laughs> Anyways. But it Sam's wording here reminds me of something that happens in book two of someone else who comes to the wall for a bit, where Stannis speaks to Davos about why he's chosen to partner with Melisandre and goes, the seven have never brought me so much as a sparrow. It is time I tried another hawk, Davos, a red hawk. Oh, yes, yes. So we get the sorting hat ceremony. Calder and Elbit end up going to the builders, Gren, Pip, Totter, and Mathar to the rangers. And then Sam, Darren, and John join the stewards. And this is some drama. Oh, he's so pissed. He's like... This is obviously wrong, Mike. Sam's going to be helping Eamon. I like this detail that Darian, because he feasted with High Lords as a singer, is going to be good with helping with the food purchasing. That's not, as a person who works in that industry. I mean, they were just, I think, more or less like, please make sure that these things are of high quality and like uh, that we're not getting ripped off, I guess. Also that like we have food. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I, the rest he's going to learn on the job, right? Like, this is still right. like the beginning He's just being trained. But John's like, what the fuck? Alright, he's about to protest, and then he sees Alistair Thorne, like, staring all- staring like at him. John, he think he know it'd be like it is, but it don't. But he think that it do. Oh my god. He thinks that Alistair has fucked him over for his new job. John is pissed about his duties. He's like, do you take me for a servant? And Maester Eamon, of course, comes back with some hot fire. No, Maester Eamon said from the back of the sept. Clytus helped him stand. We took you for a man of the Night's Watch. But perhaps we were wrong in that. Oh! <laughs> Damn, Targaryen you know you burn. fucked up. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know you <laughs> fucked up when Maester Eamon's out here calling you out, alright? Yeah, Grandpa Eamon's like, what the fuck? Yeah. So John it's storms like off and he's moody as hell. But, like, I'm over here, like, that's your relative. How dare you walk away? You respect your elders. Oh, yeah. Respect your grandpa. Well, he's not really, I no. mean, he didn't have any offspring. But, you know, your yeah. great, 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 uncle. great, great, great. He's, he's great, all right? Damon's great. <laughs> we love him. John, Samuel Tarly said excitedly, wait, don't you see what they're doing? 
John turned on him in a fury. I see Sir Alistair's bloody hand. That's all I see. He wanted to shame me, and he has. Darian gave him a look. The stewards are fine for the likes of you and me, Sam, but not for Lord Snow. I'm a better swordsman and a better rider than any of you, John blazed back. It's not fair! Fair! Darian sneered. <laughs> the girl was waiting for me, naked as the day she was born. She pulled me through the window, and you talked to me of fair? <laughs> he walked off. I love that. He totally has the right yeah. of it. Darian has the right of it. John doesn't understand his privilege. Like, you chose to come here. No one chooses to go to the Night's Watch. That's like a last place to go. I agree. John doesn't get it here. He's going to get it in a second. But, like, I love that Darian, like, throws that at him and the reader. And also that Darian's the one to deliver this message to John about fairness. and Because it feels like a life is not a song moment, I think. And he should know, because he's actually an expert on the romantic notions of songs not matching up with reality, because, you know, he's it's like, he was almost a singer. Right. He was studying under one. He's kind of a singer, as John puts it. Sam tells John there's no shame in being a steward. Don't you see? Jayor asked for you himself. He'll be with the Lord Commander all the time. Sam explains when he was little and the heir to Horn Hill, he accompanied his father for everything. But then it was Dickon. The Lord wanted his heir at his side to learn and to be groomed for command. John says, I never asked for this. None of us are here for asking, Sam reminded him. And suddenly, John Snow was ashamed. Craven or not, Samwell Tarley had found the courage to accept his fate like a man. On the wall, a man gets only what he earns. Benjamin Stark had said the last night John had seen him alive. You're no ranger, John. Only a green boy with the smell of summer still on you. He'd heard it said that bastards grow up faster than other children. On the wall, you grew up or you died. John let out a deep sigh. <sighs> you have the right of it. I was acting the boy. Such growth. Holy shit, such growth. Like, John straight up just stopped and he used his brain, his logic, and said, okay, I guess I overreacted it. Yeah, it is funny because you were saying earlier, like, how John's the only person who really chose to be here. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because John's ashamed because he's like, mm, I'm the, I asked to be here. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And everyone else is like, mm, no, we're just here. Um, and you see it a lot in this chapter in the next one. And we like keep talking, we're going to keep talking about John's growth. All right. Um, because he keeps echoing how he's so much of a green boy. And his story is just such a classic, like literally within the genre of a coming of age story yes. of what he's learning in terms of, like, what he knew and he didn't know. And later on, he, like, starts to internalize that he knows nothing, which on one hand is good in terms of humility, but it becomes really twisted within John's story because when he reminds himself that he knows nothing, it's just the sadness and self-hate. And he tries to force himself to grow up. Instead of, like, doing it organically, he tries to force himself with, like, kill the boy and let the man be born, and it's just very sad. Yeah, he has to learn to put on a lord's face, uh, and he kind of gets lost in that mask talking about he characters does. that put faces on i guess oh <laughs> ooh, identity <laughs> motifs themes wait can can i throw out something crazy it's not that crazy samuel tarley as the hermione of john's story yes however i think samuel tarley is the neville for sure oh he's also that yeah he's more of the neville never mind he's like all. a neville turn into like hermione Neville Miney. Neville Miney, yeah. <laughs> Which I guess Hermione technically has that arc as well, but Hermione. it works. We're just going to say it's both. John agrees to say the words with Sam, so they leave to say their vows in the late afternoon out beyond the wall, and we end up getting a really good amount of exposition about Castle Black and the wall. Uh, the wall and Castle Black had no gates. They go down a narrow tunnel, and three times they are blocked by iron bars. Sam worries, and he asks if the wildlings would ever come this close to the wall, and John says they have never tried before. So you know they're gonna. Yeah, exactly. That's like right there. That's Chekhov's wildlings. Pretty much. John brings Ghost with him on the other side of the wall, and they enter the haunted forest. And the haunted forest feels like a different world, and it's like riding past the end of the world to John, which is very much the language that George uses when he's talking about Hadrian's wall and how he felt there. It's super dark and mysterious because, you know, it's like, a haunted forest, right? Uh, there are nine weirwoods that stand in a circle, which is actually an enormous amount of weirwoods, apparently, because even in the wolf's wood, only two grow around each other, so it's real fucking lush up here. The floor is blood red on top and black 
rotting leaves below and the trunks are white as bone and there are nine faces staring inward it's all creepy and shit and then the horses have to be left outside because we're preserving the sanctity of this like tree circle (laughs) and no horses allowed (laughs) god how dare (laughs) so that's not where we're holding our patreon no we are not doing our live stream there no, because only we can't bring our allowed. horses. Yeah, we're gonna make our own circle of only horses staring inwards, and no <laughs> trees will be allowed inside our circle. John and Sam can feel that the old gods are watching them as they say the words, and um, we're not going to say the O's, all right? Because other podcasts have did it, and we are women, and therefore not allowed to join the Night's Watch. Absolutely, are not. So we're just gonna talk about what happens next, which is you knelt as boys bow and march in tone solemnly rise now as men of the night's watch i love kind of what you said about that haunted forest feeling how it's dark and mysterious i feel like the eeriness of north of the wall really sticks out in these chapters in a game of thrones it even harkens Mm -hmm. back to that prologue there's almost sleepy hollow vibes coming from it yeah just the the mist and the snows and the the headless horseman kind of trope going on with the others uh in the next Ah. chapter you know we find othor dead from an axe wound which makes me think even more of headless horseman rider and then there's that 14th century poem that's called sir gawain and the green knight it's kind of makes this whole entire plot a twist of arthurian horror north of the wall can you tell us a little more about the 14th oh my god called sir gawain and the green knight yes i can i can i can i can So basically it features a headless horseman. It's this big giant knight and he is beheaded by Gawain. The green knight lifts his head up with one hand and he rides down the hall, challenging him to meet again, even though his head's completely chopped off and dead. Uh, So it's basically, you know, just fighting that undead kind of person, very sleepy Mm. hollow. But it really makes me think of that because Sir Gawain and the green knight, uh, that idea of green knight, yeah. Just like... The green seers, but also John is a green boy right now. Yes, but of course, John is really, Sir Gawain would be John in this, though. But still, it's, yeah. uh, it's just reminiscent of it in that. And it's something that, you know, it was written by an anonymous Gawain poet many, 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 many years ago, 14th century. Uh, and it's kind of a trope that exists in different Arthurian pieces all around. And I mean, God, it's a long ass poem. It's like 2,500 lines. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. They use the bobbin wheel, right, with a short line and then followed by the wheel with the long line, the internal rhyme. And they also did a lot of the alliterative revival style that was typical of the 14th century. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's very cool. As they prepare to start back, Ghost reappears between the trees, his coloring matching them. And, oh, look, he's brought us a hand. Aw, good boy. Yeah. This is exactly what I wanted. I I think the thing that you say, Chloe, fits here. The, oh, thanks, I hate it. (laughs) Thanks, I hate it. That's, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, Real quick, just a sidebar, so you know, there's a similar story that there's a legendary Irish figure who faces a trial similar to Gawain's and has to slay a monstrous hound. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So... We pop right over to our lightning round of what we missed between John 6 and John 7 before we climb on into John 7. It's very dense. This is a pretty quick lightning round. And so we start with Eddard 14. There's a lot of things that we could say, but ultimately betrayal. Do you like, like, I straight up started to write something and I was like, I'm just going to say betrayal. I know, I do, I do. (laughs) There's just, uh, these chapters can all be summed up pretty quickly. I mean, at the very end of this book, there's just one purpose for each chapter, you know, so... Arya 4, what do we say to the god of death, girl? Not today. Sansa 4, Sansa is brought out of house arrest and made to write letters to her family, begging them to swear fealty to Joffrey? And John 7, bodies of two missing rangers have shown up, but something isn't quite right with them. John learns of his father's treason, and he's later provoked by Alistair Thorne. John saves the old bear from the reanimated body of a dead Night's Watchman. And so begins John 7, with Jeremy Riker identifying two of Benjamin Stark's men. They are found dead by ghosts in the snows, and they are Othor and Jafer Flowers. My uncle's men, John thought numbly. He remembered how he had pleaded to ride with them. Gods, I was such a green boy. If he had taken me, it might be me lying here. Duh. Yeah. Like, he wasn't lying when he called you a green boy, John. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's a definitely another one of those moments of growth for John. Yes. These are really weird corpses, right? Because the horses are super afraid of them, and the dogs like them even less. Yeah, and John recalls that he dreamed about the Winterfell Crips again the night before, searching for his mm. father. Only this time, the dream had gone further than before. In the dark, he'd heard the scrape of stone on stone. When he turned, he saw that the vaults were opening, one after the other. One after the other. Ooh. Oh. As the dead kings came stumbling from their cold, black graves, John had woken in pitch dark, his heart hammering. There's a lot in this. The scrape of stone on stone is actually completely similar to the sound he later hears from the other Other with the scrape of boot on stone. And the way that the text presents it to us, they say, and then he heard it, which gives us that language saying this is a familiar sound that he's hearing again, just like what he heard in his dream. Oh, that's a great catch. I didn't I didn't notice how much this dream echoes and like obviously it's an omen, but like how much it is. Also, yeah, that's hilarious that his name's like Othor. Sounds like other. Yeah, it's a bit much, George. It's, it's uh, very much on the nose, but uh, you know, whatevs. Better what than on the neck or the wrist. <laughs> it's better than Magor's raid lasting what is it, six years, six months, and six days or something like that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking devil. Fucking edgy. All right. Sam is afraid to look at the dead also, but John tells him that he has to. Yeah, just like with Bran in that chapter with Bran, where John tells him, you know, you have to look or else father will know you didn't look. Very much so Bran vibes. And at the same time, it's him also trying to be this positive leader in their friendship group to keep Sam from, you know, being in not trouble, but getting, you know, picked on or getting bullied or hazed or etc. Yeah, it's all of that. I I love that it has those brand vibes. And also because it reminds us of that, shows us that they are brothers now. Yes. That companionship and that brotherhood. Oh. Oh. There's so much of that in this chapter. It makes, I like, was, I got really emotional reading this chapter. I'm a grown ass woman. Um. (laughs) (laughs) And these are just wee babes. Yes. The old bear questions, then, how could this have happened? Like, they had hunting horns. Were, like, all of you rangers out here deaf? And he's just, like, laying into Jeremy Riker, who's like, uh, yeah, they have horns, but none of them were blown. Okay. And Jaywar himself had limited their patrols and told them to stay close to the wall. Um, and then in examining the head, Jeremy says that the body was butchered by an axe. His flesh was blanched white as milk everywhere but his hands. His hands are black like Jafer's. Blossoms of hard, cracked blood decorated the mortal wounds that covered him like a rash breast and groin and throat. Yet his eyes were still open. They stared up at the sky, blue as sapphires. Oh my god. <laughs> I have no regrets. <laughs> It's interesting to think about kind of that cold hands character and all this and what would have halted Mm. this transformation into full zombie. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess, I mean, what if the show's right that it's the the glass in him? Yeah. I don't know. Possibly that they, he halted it by putting dragon glass into him. I don't know. I don't know. What I do want to know that I do not know is, like, are the whites just fucking playing possum right now? Okay, like, yes, they are actually dead. But did they walk all this way, lie down, and be like, we're going to do a prank? Like, is that, was this, did they plan this or something? Mm. Or did, like, whoever's controlling them plan this? These are questions I have. <laughs> oh my god. Sir Jeremy is pushing a wildling narrative, but Jor doesn't really believe that, and Sam doesn't either. Sam works up his courage, and he starts to nervously speak, although Chet is bullying him at the same time. Shut the fuck up, Chet. Yeah, shut up, Chet, you loser. Sam says blood isn't flowing in these dead bodies, and he points out where Ghost ripped the hand off. More than that, the blood was black dust. Dwyan the Forester takes a huge sniff on the corpses, and he agrees with Sam. Sam points out they've been lying in the woods, but there are no maggots or worms either. John even adds in about the horses and dogs not going near them. This, this is all wrong, Sam Tarly said earnestly. The blood, there's bloodstains on their clothes and, and their flesh dry and hard, but... There's none on the ground or anywhere with those, those, those. Sam made himself swallow, took a deep breath. With those wounds, terrible wounds, there should be blood all over, shouldn't there? Dywin sucked at his wooden teeth. Might be they didn't die here. Might be someone brought them and left them for us. A warning, as like. The old forester peered down suspiciously. And might be. I'm a fool, but I don't know that Other never had no blue eyes before. Sir Jeremy looked startled. Neither did flowers, he blurted turning to stare at the dead men. 
A silence fell over the wood. For a moment, all they heard was Sam's heavy breathing and the wet sound of Dywin sucking on his teeth. John squatted beside Ghost. Burn them, someone whispered. One of the rangers, John could not have said who. Yes, burn them, a second voice urged. Oh, it's so horror, and it's so good. Burn them, someone whispered. How good is that? I love it. I love that it, you don't even know, and it's just like, it's just a voice in the... It becomes the voice in the back of everyone's head. Yeah. Uh, it's like living with an infestation of something, you know, that creepy crawly, just like, you don't mm -hmm. know when you're gonna have to deal with it, popping up. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that John has said before that he's like, mm, everyone's kind of thinking it, but no one wanted to say it. Yeah. And Jeremy's like acting as the initial skeptic. I kind of wonder if he refused to acknowledge that they were whites more for his own sanity and not as much of his like stubbornness. I appreciate that we're seeing like uh, Sam's bravery here. Yeah. And we know that someone didn't bring them here and leave them for them. And like, I guess... And the forester asks if it's a warning. It reminds me of Joe Magician's theory of like why the others keep making those like weird patterns that it's kind of like a fuck you mm -hmm. or like a, a warning. Which they did just uh, confirm that actually the director of the episode confirmed that's why. Yeah. So he was correct in that theory. A plus. Can't wait to have Joe Magician on with his correct theories. Indeed. Indeed. But, you know, speaking of correct theories and Sam... <laughs> No, <laughs> right yeah sam was so I, I love that like john's like no shut up let him talk and jor was like let him talk let him let him speak about this uh yeah jor wants aemon to examine the bodies before they burn them and they bring the bodies back to the wall with difficulty because of course the horses and dogs will not carry them they end up having to use physical labor to get it back Mormont then commands Jeremy to find the rest of the missing men at any cost and scout the entire forest. He will know anyone who steps foot in there. Yes. After that, Mormont rode in silence, brooding. John followed close behind him as the Lord Commander Steward. That was his place. The day was grey, damp, overcast, a sort of day that made you wish for rain. No wind stirred the wood, the air hung humid and heavy, and John's clothes clung to his skin. It was warm, too warm. The wall was weeping copiously, had been weeping for days, and sometimes John even imagined it was shrinking. The old men called this weather spirit summer, and said it meant the season was giving up its ghosts at last. And after this, the cold would come, they warned, and a long summer always meant a long winter. This summer lasted ten years. John had been a babe in arms when it began. I love that speech on just, just the climate, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I kind of like tracking how the seasons have come and gone in the time, like we talked about a couple episodes ago. I love also that everyone's mentors really reflect those little bits of them and the pieces they keep, like the bear brooding. This chapter mm -hmm. really signifies that start of the vicious, haunting cold that is to come. Yes. It's just all, like, warning about it. And there's, as you were saying, a lot of great temperature language in here, just like you see it in the prologue. It's, like, always just too warm, and later on it's too cold, and that clues you in that something's just not right. Though... You know, as you're saying, in terms of keeping time of the temperatures, it makes me, like, think, I can't believe they fucking fought this huge-ass civil war, Robert's Rebellion, this brutal war in the winter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I always think about that, especially because you, you don't think about it, and then you're like, oh, yeah, the false spring. Duh, that means it went right back to winter, which I can believe it because I'm originally from Michigan. So I mean, sure, but, like, it just makes it that much more brutal. Yeah, absolutely. It makes those rubies drop it in the water. Just, mm. uh. So Ghost runs with them, and John is thinking back on some of the creepy tales old Nan used to tell. In the darkness, the others came riding, she used to say, dropping her voice lower and lower. Cold and dead they were, and they hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun, and every living creature with hot blood in its veins. They're all true! All of these stories were true! Old Nan, you're so old! <laughs> she is so old. Uh, I also demand squishers! Oh my god. I demand squishers! Squish, okay. squish. <laughs> squish squish bitch all right um yeah also the hating of iron someone has pointed this out to me before i don't remember it's like an old fairy fairy thing that they don't like iron um mormont tells sam and john that they did well good job good job boys john thinks that no matter what he got to be a ranger for a day and then as the horn sounds to announce their arrival back bow and marsh welcomes them with urgent news though 
uh, of a rider with a message, and Maester Aemon is awaiting the Lord Commander in his solar. John, don't be sad. You get to be a ranger now the rest of your life. Forever. Yay. Forever a and ranger ever. in the snow. <laughs> the rest of your life of the next, like, I don't know, two, three years. Christ. Oh Sorry, God. everyone. While Mormont goes off to meet Aemon, John takes his horse to the stable. Alistair Thorne gives him an odd smirk, and Donald Noy calls out, The gods be with you, Snow, as he walks by. As he enters the common hall, Pip breaks the news. The king is dead. Pip offers his condolences, and he says he knows John's family was close with Robert. They were as close as brothers once. John wondered if Joffrey would keep his father as the king's hand. It did not seem likely. That might mean Lord Eddard would return to Winterfell and his sisters Aww. as well. He might even be allowed to visit them with Lord Mormont's permission. It would be good to see Arya's grin again and to talk with his father. I will ask him about my mother, he resolved. I am a man now. It is past time he told me, even if she was a whore. I don't care. I want to know. Hmm. I mean, do you, John? I mean, you do, but, like, do you? It's a lot. It's yeah. a lot. It's great that, like, John proceeds the rest of this exchange, though, thinking about the that relationship between Ned and Robert, and we did talk a lot about, you know, the Ned, Robert, John Aaron, like, little family, like, brothers in the Ned episodes back then, but that John thinks of Ned and Arya and then get with the other boys. Like, we see it repeated that, like, Ned and Robert were the brothers. Sometimes just because you don't share blood doesn't mean you aren't family. Absolutely. You see that here with these boys. Pip immediately asks about the dead men and John brushes him off and says, go ask Sam. He'll tell you. And then he takes his leave to find the old bear to see if he needs him. And of course he did. He was asking for John and John tells himself, it's nothing. He just wants wine or a fire in his hearth. That's all. But the gods are never uh -huh. good, and his raven is calling corn in the background the whole while. Lord Mormont commands John to pour them both, both of them, a glass of wine. Which, like, later on, Jared Mormont's gonna be like, don't do anything stupid, John. And I'm just saying, from John's point of view, Lord Jared, do you know what happened the last time John got super drunk, right? He makes really rash choices. <laughs> Why would you be like, oh, drink this whole glass of wine and don't do anything dumb? That was foolish. Right. Jared Mormont. <laughs> Why would you why would you trust the teenage boy? Okay. Mormont lifted his eyes from the letter to stare at John. There was pity in that look. He could taste it. You heard me. John remained standing. It's my father, isn't it? The old bear tapped the letter with a finger. Your father and the king, he rumbled. I won't lie to you. It's grievous news. I never thought to see another king, not at my age, with Robert half my ears and strong as a bull. He took a gulp of wine. They say the king loved to hunt. The things we love destroy us every time, lad. Remember that. My son loved that young wife of his, vain woman. If not for her, he never would have thought to sell those poachers. John could scarcely follow what he was saying. My lord, I don't understand. What's happened to my father? I told you to sit, Mormont grumbled. Sit! The raven screamed. And have a drink, damn you. That's a command, Snow. John sat and took a sip of wine. Lord Eddard has been imprisoned. He is charged with treason. It is that he plotted with Robert's brothers to deny the throne to Prince Joffrey. No, John said at once. That couldn't be. My father would never betray the king. Be that as it may, said Mormont. It is not for me to say, nor for you. But it's a lie, John insisted. How could they think his father was a traitor? Had they all gone mad? Lord Eddard Stark would never dishonor himself, would he? He fathered a bastard, a small voice whispered inside of him. Where was the honor in that? And your mother, what of her? He will not even speak her name. Oh. oh. John. It's not because of that, John, I promise. It's out of pain. It is. Mm. And, to, and to protect him. Yes. <sighs> There's a couple of things I want to talk about in here, like that idea of the things we love destroy us every time. First of all, now I'm kind of wondering, is that J.R. Mormont thinking about his love for his son Jorah, who's a fucking disappointment? Not just Jorah being quote-unquote destroyed by Lynnas. Jorah made his own goddamn choices. Anyway, it reminds me of Cersei talking to Sansa about love is a poison. And maybe it's like a running thing in the series, but it like actually pretends a lot of things like... 
the things that you love destroying you, like Ned choosing to fess up to being a traitor even though he's not in order to protect Sansa, or John deciding that he's going to send Mance to save his sister Arya and, you know, announcing dumb shit in the Shield Hall. These are just a few examples. Uh, but also, Ghost finding a dead hand and bringing it back, just as the stag's horn in the direwolf's neck was one omen. I wonder if that was supposed to be an omen about Ned, because oh, yeah. it does make a wonderful segue right into the Ned being arrested chapter, and then John finding all this shit out. And there is a ton more that echoes that, right? Because John is like disbelief, he's surprised. He asks if Joffrey would listen to Jor if Jor were to speak to the king. But Jor says no, Joffrey would listen to the queen mother, which we all know that's not happening. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, he says that John's lady mother kidnapping Tyrion did not help the situation. And this is interesting. John sharply reminds him Catelyn was not his mother. And then he thinks of Tyrion as a friend, and he thinks that if Lord Eddard died, Catelyn was as much to blame as Cersei. And I thought that was a really interesting line, and I think, like, with what you were saying of those echoes of Cersei saying love is poison, this right here reminds me of a couple moments from Sansa's arc with Cersei. It reminds me of Sansa blaming everybody except Joffrey, right, for mm. Lady's death. She, it's, it's Cersei's fault Lady is dead, the Queen's fault, it's Arya's fault, it's not Joffrey's fault. And then even the language later where Mormont is disappointed in John, it kind of mirrors that loyalty of Cersei being disappointed when Sansa questions writing those letters to send to her family. And this all happens around the same time. So I can definitely see where some of these parallels are really coming in with these mentors and with the people that they're stuck around. And I think that's such a good point about the letters because you get a twist on it, right? With as you pointed out, Cersei questions Sansa writing those letters, but Jared Mormont is also asking John to sit down and write letters with him, mm-hmm. too. So, a lot of things that are similar. John then asks Jared Mormont about his sisters, but turns out Pycelle didn't think to speak of it in his raven because, of course, he fucking didn't. And Mormont says that, you know, I'm going to ask about this in the letter that we're going to write together. And John's duty, though, he reminds him is to the watch, not his old family anymore. And he thinks, this is my father, my sisters, how can it be none of my concern? It's that first kind of knife in John's loyalty, right? He is Rhaegar's son, but he is also very much his father's son, Ned Stark. And that is the biggest first punch of, you know, like, oh, he's not going to remain loyal to these people. He will desert them. Yeah. This is not his real family. Well, it, it's such a temptation for him that keeps coming up again and again, like of testing, testing John as a character in general. Yeah, it's a huge overarching theme for him right up until that fifth book where he dies. Uh, and interestingly enough, you know, it's testing him over and over and over. And he mm-hmm. can't help but feel like this is the first time that family has ever needed him and wanted him, right? He was never needed and wanted. And this is his time he can shine and save them. And that's what he thinks. And it's such a punch in the gut that this comes in this chapter, right? It's literally right after he's taken the vows, and it seems like it's such unfortunate timing, mm-hmm. but now now he has to live up to that vow. Yes. He leaves the commander's solar, and even the guards are treating him kind of piteously. He takes comfort in Ghost, and he laments that his sisters could not have their wolves, even for comfort. Damn. Their wolves might have kept them safe, but Lady is dead and Nymeria is lost. They're all alone. So it reminds me of that line we get in Eddard 4, right, where Ned is thinking about what John said when they found the pups. Your children were meant to have these pups, my lord. And he had killed Sansa's. And for what? Was it guilt he was feeling or fear? If the gods had sent these wolves, what folly had he done? Yeah, John is going to recognize the importance of having a wolf in, like, just a second. We're going to get there. But first, Hob is going to serve John an extra-large helping Aww. of stew. And then John looks around because he like he's like, oh, shit, everyone knows. So he's feeling super embarrassed and lonely because everyone's, like, looking down. They're trying to be polite and be like, we're not looking. We don't know. We don't know anything. You're our brother. Yep. Sorry, it's awkward. But then, thankfully, the Fellowship shows up. I love this so much. This is, like, my favorite yeah. thing in the world. And it's yeah. cute. They've asked for there to be candles lit in the sept. And then they tell John, like, we don't believe it. No one believes it. It's fine. Like, everyone knows that's bullshit. Sam offers to go pray in the weirwoods with John, even though, like, we all know it's it's weird and scary, all right? And then John begins to think that these are just as much his brothers as Rob and Bran and Rickon. They are. But. Then Sir Alistair Thorne interrupts. He but I also want to point everything. out first. I know, he really does. First, like, I just <laughs> love the moment that Pip is like, 
he's your father, so he's our father now, too. And I'm like, that's so cute. cute. You're so cute. Yeah. It's really cute. It's a that's it's a really emotional scene of just like friendship and you know Sam. Oh, well, we can go pray at the Weirwoods and Pip and Greta. You know, know. we we'll, we asked for you know candles to be lit for your father, and none of us believe it, John. We know we know your dad's honorable, and it's just it's it's something because it's so important to John. Yeah, his dad's honor and like who Eddard Stark was as a person, and like I mean, John, you know, built his whole life around it. He's you know done things the way that he thought ned would do them and it's to have that whole world shattered and obviously we think this is an identity crisis of having his dad like be a treasonous (laughs) traitor like wait till you figure out he's not your dad that's even crazier yeah i mean he's your dad he just wait till you figure out he didn't put any sperm into this whole fucking deal (laughs) literally (laughs) the whole baby just throw it out Christ. All right. So Alistair anyway. Thorne interrupts John, and it's the worst. And he goes, not only a bastard, but a traitor's bastard. He's telling all the men around him. And immediately Ugh. John snaps. There is no... John hears this, and he snaps. His friends all try to hold him back. He lunges for Alistair Thorne with his dagger out, going for his beady little black eyes. And after he's marched back to his room, Mormont comes down, disappointed in John, after having told him not to do anything stupid. Again, what was J.R. Mormont thinking? You gave him a whole glass of wine. He doesn't have any tolerance. Right. What did you think was going to happen, first of all? Okay. Second, I love that all his friends are thro- holding him back. I'm just imagining it as this like hilarious scene. Everyone's loud and wild, and John's like just grappling, and Alistair Thorne's like, Ugh, and then... With all this happening, you get the record scratch, freeze frame, and goes, Hi, I'm Jon Snow. You're probably wondering how I got here. <laughs> and imagine that instead as the start of Game of Thrones oh, and Jon's story. Absolutely. A typical coming of age, I'm just saying. <laughs> they take away his knife and his sword, and they tell him he has to stay in his sleeping cell and no contact until the higher council decides on what to do with him. Mormont lets him have ghosts at least, so he's not wholly alone. That's nice. Yeah, he talks to Ghost, he tells him his father would never commit treason, and suddenly, the cell starts to get colder. Ghost starts to act crazy, he gouges the door, he's snarling, and it appears like there's something outside the sleeping cell. And then shivering uncontrollably, John opens the door, it's like the middle of the night and shit, and... Uh, there's supposed to be a guard here. There's a guard watching us, right? Uh, no, he's dead. He's on the ground, all right? And his head, he's staring all the way up at the ceiling, but he's lying down on his stomach because it's turned all the way around. Classic trope. Classic. Yes. It can't be, John told himself. This is the Lord Commander's Tower. It's guarded day and night. This couldn't happen. It's a dream. I'm having a nightmare. He hears a noise from above outside the Lord Commander's chamber, and he hears that scrape of boot on stone and a latch turning, which in his dream, of course, he dreams of that vault opening, uh, completely the same thing. And Mm -hmm. it's incredible horror. It's perfect. The color has drained out of everything. You can see your breath. That's how this chapter feels. Everything except those blue sapphiric eyes. Yes. Yes. It's just... And there's so much that you can't see. It's so great. John works the guard's sword, though, out of its sheath before he goes up, which is, which is smart. And he goes with ghosts, and then when he gets in, Mormont's Raven is, like, just calling, Corn! Corn! The whole time. Really useful. And, of course, uh, much speculation sense here, but there's been a lot of that bird possibly being skin changed into by Blood Raven. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if it's happening yet here, but definitely, definitely is in a second. Yes. Then he saw it, a shadow in the shadows, sliding toward the inner door that led to Mormont's sleeping cell. A man shape in all black, cloaked and hooded, but beneath the hood, its eyes shone with an icy blue radiance. Ugh, blue as the eyes of death. John then attempts to stab the white with the guard's sword, but turns out that doesn't work, alright? Uh, the whole fight is super off, the skin is wrong, the blood is wrong, everything's wrong. I want to call this line out real quick. I really love this line. He had no time to be afraid. It's like that no chance, no choice. You know, mm. he takes his sword and he just, this is his moment in a Game of Thrones. This is John's big moment right here. It is. And uh, he turns around, the other turns around and it's Othor the other. And he has this thought, gods, he's dead. He's dead. I saw him dead. And it's this crazy horror moment. It really is. You can imagine it being that, again, that typical like, slow horror movie turning around as the bright blue eyes start showing up 
I'm also going to say that I'm honestly very impressed at how much Jeremy Mormont has slept through in this moment. Like, John woke up because it felt weird, and Jeremy Mormont's like, whatever, until he's not, right? And then Ghost and John (laughs) are wrestling with Othor, and then when all hope feels lost, finally fucking Jeremy Mormont wakes up, right? He shows up. And then breaking free of Othor, John grabs Mormont's lantern candle thing. Yeah. I'm going to let you say this. It's fine. So he breaks free of Othor, and Othor still has ghost. John grabs Mormont's lantern candle thingy, and he lights the reanimated man on fire, while the bird is in the background cawing, Burn! 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 (laughs) The direwolf went wrenched free and came to him as the white struggled to rise, dark snakes spilling from the great wound in its belly. John plunged his hand into the flames, grabbed a fistful of the burning drapes, and whipped them at the dead man. Let it burn, he prayed as the cloth smothered the corpses, the corpse. Gods, please, please let it burn. You should let it burn. Deep down inside, Ofer is undead. I'm not as good at freestyling. <laughs> it's okay. I got you. I got you, little pussy Thanks. and little pigeon. Thanks. Uh, speaking of little pigeons, the bird knows. Oh my god, yes, it is totally Blood Raven. It is. Burb Raven. Is Let It Burn the Song of Ice and Fire? <laughs> By okay, Usher. well. <laughs> so, are, is John having prophetic dreams then, or what? I think it's interesting. Well, obviously, everyone feels that the the dreams of the crypts, in regards to his parentage, are prophetic, yes. right? But it's interesting that it is here too yes with the others which has that crazy mystical connection there's that and also i mean granted this is brand's doing but in i think it's clash and it happens at the same time where brand sees john and john's like third eye-ish is opened thanks to brand so yes it makes sense if it's from his connection with the old gods through ghost yeah and Absolutely, because we see that with the kids, you know, they have these kind of prophetic, omen-esque dreams. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I mean, you have that kill the kill the boy and let the man be born eventually, and that right there is pretty much, I mean, that's the whole idea of being reborn, just like Bran being pushed. Kill the boy, oh. Bran. Yeah. You know, open that third eye. So I think it's, uh, obviously, we know from George that all Stark kids have the capability Mm-hmm. Of their third eye being open, and just certain ones do not have it open. Like, Sansa does not have it open. It's the only one. Yeah. Uh, Rickon dreams the same shit. Sansa still has dreams that are similar, though. I mean, she has the dreams of lady that feel real. She dreams weird things sometimes, too. So, really, the Stark kids all have crazy dreams. Yeah. Yeah, and it, as you said, comes from strange magicness happening in their generation amongst those the, kids. That magical-ass blood of the first men. Indeed. It's not Indeed. all of them. Not all of them, yeah. Well, that was an episode. Holy crap. We got through John 7, which is super dense. I don't know how we got through it that quickly because it is just, there's so much going on. And I know I'm personally not the person to talk about the others in, you know, smart talk. I just, uh, yeah. they're there. They're ice zombies. They're a threat. Yeah, I just am the same. It's not. I think a strength we're here to talk about John's character growth and how the others play into that. Yeah, absolutely. That incoming threat and how John is going to continue to handle it through all of his books. I mean, even uh, even when we get to Clash and Storm and when he's with the Wildlings, it still exists. And it kind of becomes, oh, I don't know, I'd say it becomes really more important when he goes off with the wildlings. That's uh, He sees that the others, what it's doing firsthand to whole colonies of people. That's true. It's destroying people, it's uniting them. And of course, another character in these chapters, Sam, also sees this huge threat. Like A lot of what John is encountering, interestingly, he's seeing the whites, right? He's seeing their power through the undead, whereas Sam's the one who's like out here seeing like, oh, I saw White Walker, everyone. And everyone's like, yeah, that's bullshit. He's like, no, I really did. It's very important that we all talk about this in Dragon Glass right now, everyone. (laughs) Well, that was a chapter then. Wonderful. I think that's about it, right? Yes, good. Yep, 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 yep. Cool. Well, everyone, again, 
We are excited to do this live stream soon. And obviously earlier this week, you'll have gotten some of our takes on Season 8, Episode 2. Yes, and don't forget to watch out for the Patreon episode that'll be coming out with Manu from A Scene of Ice and Fire, Manuclear Bomb on Twitter. And if you want to keep track of when all those different things drop and when they're happening, be sure to subscribe to us on social media. You can find us at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter. And also shoot us an email if you like at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, make sure you subscribe to us to get notifications of when we post episodes. We'll post our Game of Thrones episodes on Tuesdays and our regular book episodes on Fridays. You can get us on Podbean, on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Acast, and Stitcher. And of course, if you want some of those book episodes a little earlier, you can subscribe to us on Patreon. For $5 and up, you get those, as well as, again, this special episode with Manu and a lot of other tiers of things that are related to horses in that circle in which we will allow no trees. <laughs> yes, only horses, no trees. Fuck the trees. They don't want our horses. We don't want their trees. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. that's just how it's going to be. They started it, <laughs> not us. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Lizen Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and at LizenArborGold.com. And I have been Eliana, your other host. You probably know me as Glass Table Girl. Goodbye. Goodbye.